Very good. So it's that time you recognize Connecticut. Uh, I'm the chief of Bay Ripley. Oh, I love to just walk around. That's nice thing in your sleep. Yeah. In two, your kids out. For the sight of the sun will shine. And the light of way to love, 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 love. Your room is clean with me. Better do this too. I'm the sheep, 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 sheep. Let me all together sing it. I'm the sheep of everything. Yeah, yeah. I'm the butter, peep, up, butter, dung. Dung, butter, dung, 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 He 
he uh, he insisted that people would wake him up and he'd go right back. He said he said he felt much better. I have to agree with him. That's that's true of me. And uh, yeah, oh yeah. And uh, so late night television is not because I'm a television fan. Don't confuse that issue. Not at all. Late night television for students of sociology yeah, or students of their fellow man is invaluable because of late night television. They let it all hang out. Uh, <laughs> they really do. And, you know, early in the evening, they have uh, Debbie Reynolds movies. Uh, they, they tend to, uh, you know, they tend to have things like uh, The Waltons and, uh, you know, this nice uh, family stuff. But as, it, as time gets later, the stuff gets racier and racier. Until maybe at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning, you see stuff, man, that you just, you just, you know, you'd love to see on the screen. If you stayed up late enough, you would. For example, it was a film late last night that was shot in South Africa. And you don't see many South African movies early in the evening. It was in color. And these guys were out uh, in a Jeep. And they were, well, actually, it was a rover, a land rover. And they were in the desert. And it was a, it was a film about a pilot. And the, the great opening scenes were him crashing in the desert in what looked to me like a Cherokee 180. Really realistic. I can tell you this is a pilot. He, he, it, was, it was realistic, all right. And it was in color. You could see the desert coming up. And it was shot in South Africa in the desert. Well, later on, there was a scene that, uh, that must be uh, relayed to you early going to bed. It's because this is the kind of stuff you miss, you know, sticking around early and seeing all those old Charlton Heston films where he's playing Moses or God or something, and Debbie Reynolds where she's playing 12 forever. Uh, you, you miss so much of the good stuff. They were driving in a jeep, see, and, and they're they are out in the desert, and they've got, you know, the sun is beating down, and they're wearing desert clothes, and this is an absolutely waterless desert, nothing but sand. When the Land Rover stops, it's an open Land Rover, it's like a jeep, see, and it's a Land Rover, see, and it, it stops, and they can't get it started again. So it will, will not kick over. So one guy says to the other, Oi, since I say the battery's down. The battery is dead. And so at that point, he jumps out, and he runs around, and he opens up the hood, and he looks in it. And he says, well, he says, I, I say, he says, I, I see why well, 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 the battery has no water in it. The battery has no water in it. At which point, they had this beautiful girl with them. At which point, they can't figure out how to get this water for the, for the battery. At which point, the two men send the girl off into the desert to look the other way while they obtained water for the battery. Okay? Now, you don't see that on Debbie Reynolds' films. You won't even see that in a Charlton Heston movie. And it was, you know, a kind of racy moment. I just had <laughs> a moment of, of uh, true realism. Now, but what really got me excited, because the same night, watching TV, I came this grainy black and white. I, I never miss a monster film. I, I, uh, I happen to be addicted to monster films. And uh, on came the uh, <laughs> on came Frankenstein meets the space monster. Now, if you ever get a chance to see that, that is a classic of the genre, and uh, it, it really is. It's got it all going. It's got it's Frankenstein meets the space monster, and uh, it came on uh, with the with the you know grainy black and white. Because you see, they're using they're using film that they got on some surplus market someplace, you know, overaged film, and it's grainy. 
the, the camera jiggles a little bit. They did. They couldn't afford to rent two tripods. They only had one tripod. See, so you could tell which camera had the tripod when they switched. You know, so it was really kind of great. And, and it had a fantastic premise. See, I'll give you the premise. The premise was uh, was about the space program. You know, NASA, and they were sending up these rockets with with guys and you know uh, astronauts. Well, they got an idea. This was before, of course, uh, we sent up. Uh, all the moonshots. This is an old film, about 1963 or something like that. And uh, they, they, they begin to worry, see, about the fact that they were going to lose a man one day. Since we're going we're gonna to lose somebody, they're going to shoot up there. Why don't we just take, we, uh, we've worked out a new system. So they, they created uh, a, a space, <laughs> a capsule with this guy trapped in it, right? But he's not an ordinary man. He has been killed in a, in a terrible accident earlier someplace, and they took a brain and put it in his head. Now, you can see already, they, they, they've got something going. See, so if he gets killed, again, it won't be anything. He's just, you know, he's, he's already been dead. And they, they created a Frankenstein, and how they did it was by nuclear inversion. And, uh, yes, they got this guy in there. Now, okay, you got it going. Now, they shot him up in the air like that, but unbeknownst to them, there was a... A flying saucer was observing this, and in the flying saucer were these evil, these terrible evil people from another planet, which incidentally was named Home, um, <laughs> which I kind of like that touch. And in the in this uh, in this uh, flying saucer was the head monster. He wasn't even a monster. He was a, a you know he, was, he lived on another planet. You can't call him a monster. Let's not be prejudiced. Uh, he had a round head that looked like a ping pong ball. And, uh, yes, and he was the most lascivious uh, denizen of another planet I've ever seen in my life. And uh, he was sitting there uh, cackling at the controls, and he had little pointed ears. And, uh, <laughs> and, and with him was this fantastic seven-foot-tall woman who was very well endowed, and it looked like she was wearing some kind of a lampshade on her head. And uh, she was the princess. They kept referring to her as the princess. And why were they here on Earth? Well, now, that's where the plot got interesting. It seemed that there had been a nuclear war on their planet. And uh, and they had been out on an expedition in their ship, right, with the princess. And the nuclear war wiped out the entire population. And as he said, those who are not dead are the unlucky ones. Those who are dead are the lucky ones. The unlucky ones will go mad, and then they will die. We are all that is remaining of our magnificent race. So we have come to Earth to get breeding stock, to repopulate our planet. And they have come to Earth to capture a lot of girls. And they did. They, they landed their spaceship in Puerto Rico. And, of course, there's a lot of parties with girls lying on the beach. And these guys are running around capturing girls and bringing them back. Oh, it's a very complex plot. But the point that, I, that, that, that made me feel good about was that I was watching the credits. Now, a lot of you people don't watch the credits of any space or monster and or sci-fi film you see, do you? That's right. That's the, you should watch the credits. Uh, first of all, the hero in this was played by the guy that does the Pathmark commercials now. Yes. Uh, you can see his, his career has really uh, sort of gone up and down. So, <laughs> so there he is. He's now, he's now selling pork chops. But in those days, he was, he was a scientist, and he was creating Frankenstein's. And at one point, he said the greatest line that I've heard in recent days to come out of one of these these pointer movies. 
He looked right at the camera. And here he is, surrounded by test tubes and things. And in the back, you Then you could see shots of his oscilloscope making green lines. He's in black and white, by the way. You knew it was green, you know. And you, once in a while, something would go... And the spark would go... You know, they always have these things with the spark gaps in the monster movies. And he's, he's wearing a white coat. And he has a stethoscope. He's always carrying a stethoscope. Never used it once with somebody. He always got it. So he, that means he's a doctor and he's official. So he turns to his nurse, who had all the acting ability of a mechanized clothespin. And he turns to her and he says, Why are we doing all this? <laughs> he looks right out at you. And you, you, he says, That's a great question. Why are we doing all this? And uh, he says, I don't know why we're doing all this. And uh, later on, Dr. Nadir, who was the evil guy in the, in the spaceship, he, said, he had another good line, too. He said, uh, he says, ah, princess. He had a slight curious accent, a little bit like a Bavarian accent. He says, ah, princess, we have received signals on the 104.5 kilocycles with interrupted waves coming from the KC-1729. And she says, what does that mean? I don't know. Yes, he caught the spirit of the evening quite well. But in the credits, it was directed, produced, and written by an old friend of mine. I had never realized it. I had known this guy for years, and he did it. How would you like to be watching the credits of a, of a, of a fantastically funny space film and all of a sudden you realize your friend Aki did it, and he never mentioned it to you. But my friend did this. And I, I, I you know, it was, it was one of the one of the most grotesque monster films I've ever seen. Which reminds me, this is W O R, New York. Speak of monsters. <laughs> George. <laughs> has, it, has it ever occurred to you that you may be living on another planet to the rest of the world? That's right. But the New York, the island of Manhattan specifically, could be a giant meteorite that hit right here in the middle of the water millennia ago and produced its own race of natives. And we've been wondering why we, you know, why New York is so different from Kansas. Well, it could very well be that we haven't been from outer space. Well, I, you know, I, I, uh, I called my friend in today. See, I had to do it. Now, I didn't even know he made this classic. And that was written, directed, <laughs> shot. Uh, he did everything except uh, play uh, Dr. Nadir. And it had great names. You should have seen the monster. The monster's name was Maul. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's Maul. And uh, he, was a, he was a fantastic monster. For some reason or other, they carried him around in their, in their spaceship behind a tremendous set of bars. And uh, he was like, a, like an interplanetary uh, waste disposal. That whenever they they uh, they ran into somebody they didn't like, they threw it to the monster. Just grab it, eat him up. <laughs> so today I called my friend. I you know I called him up, and uh, he you know, he's a very distinguished type and a highly creative filmmaker. I mean you know he's the kind of guy that did all kinds of stuff for 2001. He works for Stanley Kubrick and you know, very official. So um, I called him up and. Uh, the, he came on the line, and I hadn't talked to him for a long time. See, it's one of those things. You know, you, you have friends that you don't talk to for maybe a year, maybe two years go by. 
And the yet are great friends. He's a, he's a great friend of mine. So the phone rings, and I could hear it ringing in his office, and I said, please put him on the phone. His name is Bob Gaffney. And uh, the girl says, I guess. So uh, she says, who shall I say is calling? I said, will you tell him Dr. Nadir is on the phone? And uh, <laughs> he comes on, he says, hello? And I says, hello. And he recognized my voice. I was afraid somebody would say that. I says, I saw it, and I think I'm not alone. He says, I don't know what to do about that thing. He says, that was shut up ten years ago. And he said, that thing comes back every couple of months to haunt me. He says, I can't get rid of it. He says, that thing has a life of its own now. I says, well, it certainly had a life of its own last night on, <laughs> on the old boob tube. I said, it came through loud and clear, Bob. And he says, boy, that thing, he says, you can't kill it. He says, that's like a, a 63 a sixty-three Buick. You can't kill it with a sledgehammer. And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, you know that thing is now out on 16 millimeters? He says, they rent it out. He says, that thing is being rented out all over the world. And he said, they show that all over the place. And he says, the worst thing I ever did. I said, well, Bob, there's a lesson in that for all of us. He says, you know, I made a great mistake in that film. I said, what did you do? He said, I put my name on it. <laughs> he says, that's, that's fantastic. And I said, well, tell me about it, you know. How, how, how did, you know, you, you made this, this film, and, and uh, how did it come about? Well, he said, how it came about. He says, it's kind of a sordid story. He said, I was, he said, I was on, uh, you know, Tap City at that point, and uh, he said, looking around for something to do. And he said, this, uh, this guy comes along, and he says, I want, I want to make a, I want to make a real schlock sci-fi film. He said, I don't have no script. I don't have nothing. He says, but I got some dough, and I want to make this film. And he says, but we don't have no money, hardly. So he said, at that point, I said, you come to your man. He said, I would die a quick death. He said, you know what, pick up a couple of bucks and go on. He said, so it turns out that we shot it. Now, if you're interested in the technique of movies, uh, Bob, uh, or rather, Joe, listen carefully now. Come on, get back here now. Tell him, tell him to worry about the coffee break later. You get it when it's, when it's his turn. He sa I says, how long did it take you to make that film? He says, well, five days. <laughs> five days? Do you realize shooting a film in five days is like the equivalent of writing War and Peace in 12 minutes? I said, uh, five days? He says, yeah. He said, the, the guy wanted to do it in three. But I, 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 I raised so much hell, he said, that they increased the budget, and we did it in five days in Puerto Rico. I said, oh, Puerto Rico. I said, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good. He said, yeah, well, we got a little bit. He said, but we couldn't get any time out in the sun, he said, because we were working like crazy. He said, you ever tried to shoot a feature-length film in five days? And I said, you probably had to include a lot of stuff you didn't want to include, so you better believe it. He said, for example, he says, if you look carefully, there was one scene, he said, where you could see a lot of people watching us shoot through the bushes. He says, yeah, you know, they're shooting in Puerto Rico. People came, they were looking through the bushes at him while they were shooting. He says, if you look carefully in the background, you can see all those people watching us. There was a guy sitting on hot dogs there in the crowd. And I said, well, Brown, I said, that, that must have been tough. He said, yeah, he said, I tried to cut it out. He said, but they kept coming around. I said, well, what was the worst problem you had shooting the film? He said, well, no money. He said, no money. And he says, for example, he says, all the space guns that are used in the film, by the way, space guns played a great role in this film. These guys were always appearing, see, wearing these space suits, and they would shoot the people who were giving them trouble. See, they go, wham, you know, boing, 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 boing. 
He says, well, no, we, we, uh, we had to get space guns. I said, where'd you get them? He says, Woolworth. <laughs> we went down, we bought a bunch of, of Woolworth space guns. I said, you mean you got Woolworth space guns? Yeah. He said, but uh, we had to make them look kind of different. So what we did, we put we put mirrors in the front. So they looked like they were flashing. See, they had mirrors in the, in the front and the barrel. And he said, now the actual space gun had just a little spring in there. And when the kid, it was plastic. He said, when the kid would uh, pull the trigger, it would go boing, boing, boing. And he said, so we didn't want that. We didn't want to go boing. He said, so we put a mirror in the front. He says, not of course, we didn't realize what we caused then. I said, what happened, Bob? He says, well, then we had to shoot all shots into the sun. So <laughs> there's space guns. He says, and it made everything really, uh, we had real problems with contrast then. Half the time you couldn't see anybody's faces, but you could see the guns going. I said, well, I thought that was a good effect, Bob. He said, well, you didn't want it. He said, but that's the way it was. I said, well, that was nice. I said, what else did you do then? He said, well, uh, so we had to have a spaceship, and we didn't have no budget for a spaceship. I said, well, it was a spaceship movie. How can you make a movie without a budget for a spaceship? He said, well, that's what I pointed out to the producer. And he says, well, you gotta, you got to figure out something. That's why I hired you. He said, so we went over, and we rented a geodesic dome. You know, one of these little ones. It looked like a little, like a little, uh, <laughs> like a little igloo. And he says, and we sprayed it silver. At that point, we put it up on sticks. And we put a ladder up to the side of it, and that was our spaceship. Well, it's a convincing spaceship. Here they are sitting there. And, I, and he says, well, we shot the rest of the film in the studio. And I said, in the studio? He said, yeah. He said, uh, we, we had a studio out in Long Island. And it was, actually, it was a converted dance hall. It was owned by the American Legion. And uh, we shot it in the American Legion Hall. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, that was kind of great. How long did that take? He said, well, that was four days. I said, you shot the whole thing in nine days? Well, that's pretty good shooting, Bob. You pulled it in, yeah. And uh, he said, well, not exactly. He said, our schedule called for seven and a half. He said, we shot it in nine days, though. He said, and, uh, so because of the extra day and a half, he says, the, the uh, producer wouldn't give me my percentage of the profits. <laughs> I said, oh. He said, yeah. He said, because uh, we need credit time. I said, well, Bob, uh, what, was, what was the most difficult thing you had to face on the actual show? He said, well, I'll tell you what it was. He said, that. Uh, he says, you know, when, you, when you're shooting a space science fiction, you've got a monster thing there. He said, uh, you have a problem. He says, because actors cannot relate to being from, say, an outer planet. He says, they, 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 tend to, they tend to not to believe their role. And he said, so I had to play it very straight. I told him this was a serious film, and we're doing this because it's a serious sociological study of the ramifications of outer space exploration. And he says, all the actors said, oh, yeah, I see that. And he said, we would shoot a scene, and halfway through the scene, the, 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 the actor would start laughing. He said, we waste a lot of film. And so he says, we, had a, we, we really had a lot of trouble with people. He says, then we had another thing. He says, one time, two spacemen came running up over the hill. And he says, and one guy was running one way. One guy was running. They had these plastic bubbles over the head. He says, and they ran into each other, and one guy cracked his bubble. I said, what'd you do? He says, well, we didn't have any budget for no more bubbles. He says, well, we had to eliminate them from the film. I says, you mean the actor was out of work? He says, you're damn right. He broke the bubble. That was his fault. He says, so we paid him off for a day and a half. That was $34. We paid him off for a day and a half of shooting. That was the end of it. He's out of work. I, <laughs> I said, well, that's great, Bob. Now, now... We talked about 10 minutes about this film. He says, you know, he said, it's terrible. He says, I, I, 
I'm really worried because it's not, my name is on this now. And he says, it's probably going to go on forever. He says, I can see the year 2001, and they're still playing this film, and all the other films have disappeared. So it's a recurring nightmare. He says, and ultimately, he says, I can see some French critic picking this film up and making it into a great artwork. And they will call it the Gaffney Movement. And, <laughs> and you know, the Gaffney View of Film. So I said, well, Bob, that's, that's something you produced, created, wrote, directed, shot. You know, he's a cameraman. You shot the film, you did it all in nine days. He says, yep. That's right. He says, one great, one great uncontrollable burst of mediocrity. I did it. I said, Bob, that, that must have been some excitement. He said, yes, it was. I said, Bob, you know, I can't help but thinking of you in another time and another place. He said, yep. So that goes for double. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I've never told anybody, never told it any yet. But, uh, you know, like anybody in show business, I have done many curious things. And many things I have done <laughs> have no relationship to radio or television. But they're all deeply involved in show business. I remember one night in the Mediterranean, I'm speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, the ocean, right? Deep in the bowels of an American carrier, aircraft carrier, Temperature down below decks in that aircraft carrier, 115, maybe. It was hot. And I am lying in a bunk. And the ship is, is hurtling its way through the nighttime sea. And we're off the coast of Turkey. And in fact, we're heading around the great golden horn. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm lying in the bunk, sweating my head off. Oh, it's really... Have you ever been so hot and so sweaty and so tired that you're kind of out of your head? Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, I don't know. Most people in their lives haven't. I must admit, I don't think most people have ever driven themselves to the total limits of human endurance. Most people work their eight-hour day, come home, drink their beer, and go to bed. Uh, and that's about the extent of it. And uh, so they don't necessarily find uh, themselves ever really driven to the limits. Uh, which are beyond your control. So here we are on this aircraft carrier. Why I was there is not even part of the story. It's peripherally part of the story, but not really. But if you've ever been aboard an aircraft carrier that's in action, I'm not talking about an aircraft carrier that's sitting over here at Pier 47. I'm talking about an aircraft carrier that's out doing its sweaty job. You have. Well, uh, this, this particular aircraft carrier was the last carrier that had been commissioned. Well, it was not the last carrier commissioned in World War II. This was not World War II I'm talking about. This carrier uh, was the last remaining World War II carrier that was on active fleet duty as a carrier. You want me to give you its number? CVA-9. Aha. Uh -huh. So any of you Navy types will know immediately what CVA-9 was, and this was an attack carrier. Uh, it's, it's, by the way, still in operation, and this carrier is now uh, being used for uh, anti-sub. No, it was not the Ranger. You're wrong. Anyway, this, this baby was going through. It was a beautiful ship. 
but it was not air-conditioned below decks, which the later ones were. Uh, yes, they were, as a matter of fact. But uh, nevertheless, this was hotter than the hinges of hell. And we were, we were barreling through the sea, and I was way down below decks, lying in a bunk, which was uh, about the width of your average bookshelf, and about that, that softness. And uh, hot, absolutely bombed out of my head with, with heat. It was 115 down there, and you could you put your hand out on the bulkhead, which was, of course, uh, armor plate steel, and you could just lay your hand on there, and water would drip down the walls. Very humid in that part of the world anyway. And out to sea, it's very humid and salt. And every time, it, you drink the water that comes out of the little faucets, and they have these little drinking fountains way down below, and it tastes brackish and salty and lukewarm. And uh, so we're laying, yeah, they had it, well, see, we were, this was on uh, tropical duty, and they had it laced with salt. So we're lying in the bunk beds, and lying in a sack, hotter than hell. And now, up to this point, we, <laughs> we had been working so hard, this, this group of guys that was with this particular mission we were involved in, so involved and so long, that we had gone maybe 72 hours without sleep maybe even longer. I'd say close to four days without sleep. Have you ever done that? This, this produces a curious psychological, physiological effect. That coupled with the heat. And everything started to seem funny. Everything, everything that happened seemed funny. And up above us, right directly above us, we were right under the cat, which is the catapult. Now that particular uh, carrier had a, had a steam catapult. And uh, sleeping under the catapult was an experience, and they were they were operating 24-hour-a-day combat patrol. That old CAP was going up there every 90 minutes. Another flight would come, would take off, and they were on 90-minute rotation. Every 90 minutes, the flight would take off, and another and the the flight that was out, the patroller was out, would land, and you'd hear them, you'd hear the arresting gear, and that was always the the prelim before they you'd hear that uh, the bullhorn. All along, ships. <laughs> you hear that? Uh, 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 there's a banjo on the grove. Banjo on the grove. And you know that another plane is coming. Then you hear that. <laughs> you hear that bounce, and a plane is landed. And then you hear another thing. A banjo on the grove. <laughs> another one landing up above you. And then about 30 seconds later, they'd start launching. Now, the launch sound is a special sound. You hear this thing cocking itself. What it is is a great steam-operated slingshot. That's really what it is. The, the giant slingshot, an enormous piston that literally hurls the A4D, which is the planes we were flying. The A4D literally hurls these babies right off into the into the into the void, right down the carrier deck. Incidentally, you, if you're a flyer, if you're a pilot, and uh, I must say. Uh, uh, you have never really experienced the ultimate in thrills until you have been in a, in a, uh, I'm talking about flying thrills, until you've been in an aircraft that is landing on the deck of a tossing carrier <laughs> in a, in a spanking wind. Oh, wow, we, and I have done this on several hairy occasions. Holy smokes. So, nevertheless, here we are, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. We've been up for 80 hours now, maybe sweaty, hot, and I'm lying there in nothing but skivvies, 
T-shirt. Shorts. That's it. Absolutely just drenched. The bunk is so wet. So it's always wet, actually, in that climate. But it was it was so wet that the bunk was like sleeping on a sponge. Just you could just feel that water just all over, and it was clammy. And at the same time, you were so hot. And I'm lying in the darkness, right? And everything is funny. So you hear this. Give me a little echo, Joe. I'll let them know what it sounds like. That's that's the echo. That's the sound of a ship being launched. There's a long pause between the cocking of the mechanism, and then off he goes. And another guy's been hurled out into the night in his A4D. Well, I'm lying in the bunk. And everything is, is kind of funny to me. Now, you reach a point where you're so tired that you can't sleep. You ever gotten to that point? You're physically tired. Your mind keeps running on and on like it's some kind of a giant flywheel. It won't stop. And, and I have been trying to sleep now for about a half an hour. We are, we are now off the coast of, actually, we passed the coast of Turkey, and we're now in the immediate vicinity of Lebanon, where, incidentally, there is a lot of uh, enemy action going on. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening. So I'm lying in the bunk, hot, sweaty, and I turned on the light. Every one of these bunks had a little tiny light above it. This was down in the officer's quarters, a little tiny light above it. Now, the EM bunks were very different. They had these whole pipe things, and uh, the, whole, the light was central above them. But down here, this is in, in, uh, in junior grade officers' quarters. They had little lights. So I turned this light on. I was trying to sleep. So I turned the light on. Blind there, sweating. And, and, I, and I reached down into, into this, this, uh, this sea bag that I had. I reached down looking for something to do with something to read. And I pulled this thing out. And I started to read this book, and and I started to laugh. I was reading it. I was, I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. Now, I knew it was a hysterical, tired laugh. Nothing to do with how good this stuff was. And I look across the, the, the darkness, and there on the bunk across this little stateroom from me, lying in the dark, sweating like hell, was Bob Gaffney, the man who committed the... Uh, Frankenstein meets the space monster epic that was on television last night. And uh, Bob is half asleep, and he's tired. We've been working. And Bob says, what are you laughing at? I said, I don't know, Bob. Just everything. He says, yeah, I know what you mean. And then, off it goes again, another one. And we start to laugh. We were laughing at the sound of planes being shot off. And then we began to ad-lib a giant movie script in the darkness. We're, we're laughing like hell, see. And, we're, we're, and couldn't remember a word of this the next morning, but we're, we're ad-libbing a movie script at, at 2 and 3 in the morning in the sweat and the heat. And all of a sudden, this clanging bell goes through the ship. Bong, 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 bong. It's GQ, General Court. Well, we jumped up out of our bunk and ran down through the dark corridors, which are lit with these dim red lights, to our battle station. Sweat and heat. My battle, uh, our battle station is down below in the intelligence 
down in the, down in the CAP intelligence compartment where they had this great radar screen. We were down below there, and we couldn't stop laughing. And the, the lieutenant commander down below looking at us said, what, 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 what's up now? Come on, take it easy, guys. And we, we were laughing, out of uncontrolled laughing, wearing the big, big Navy helmets and all. And that night was just one long, curious, involuted nightmare with the heat and the squip and all the uh, all the sounds of the ships being launched high above us on the flight deck and the up above us hurling through the night off the coast of Lebanon and Syria where a general quarters and the radar screen keeps whirling around and around. It was a fantastic uh, total nightmare. And so 20 minutes later after they called GQ off Bob and I are sitting in the wardroom, soaked in sweat and drinking Navy coffee, trying to remember the script that we had invented. I saw pieces of it in the spaceman's meeting. Frankenstein was safe. I really did. That strange nightmare quality to it. These are things that even Stanley Kubrick would never understand. No way. This is W.O.R. New York. You stay tuned for In Conversation, okay?